Hello and welcome to another new episode of the EMG Gold podcast. Sen Boyasi here from EMG Health, of course, and I am so excited to introduce today's guest to you. I'm pleased to welcome Nancy Globus, who is a pharmacist with a passion for medication safety and error prevention. She began her career working as a pharmacist in a number of clinical settings before embarking on an 18-year stint with MedERRS, a division of the Institute of Safety medication practices. It was here that she became an expert in medication safety, involved in error prevention, drug name safety testing, package label assessments, and other regulatory analysis. She's just taking on a new role very recently as Vice President of Regulatory and Medication Safety for global branding firm Addison Whitney. Nancy, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Sen. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Before I get going, Nancy, I have to ask, so you started at Addison Whitney a few months ago. How how was that transitioning into a new role in a new company? Actually, it, it it's gone very smoothly and everyone, I'm used to being a remote worker and mm. with everybody still being remote, it um, it's it's gone just just swimmingly, honestly. Perfect. It wasn't anything new for you then. You were quite used to the process and everything. It's just always intriguing when I see people having moved jobs very recently, I have to ask. Um, but, I'm, but I'm also very, very curious about your background and how you became to be in the position that you are now. Was there a particular person or event, Nancy, that inspired you to study and become a pharmacist? That That's a great question, Sen. And um Yes, actually, it, I was born into it. My father was a pharmacist, and he owned his own pharmacy for 25 years. So I pretty much grew up there and had those experiences interacting with the customers or patients. And, you know, when I was a little girl, uh, started out you know, fixing the shelves and ringing the cash register. But when I was in like middle school or high school, really decided that I loved the profession and worked side by side with my father um, and decided that that was going to be my career path. Um, My father's tagline for our business was serving the community for better health. And, um, and I, I really believed that. And that was what inspired me to, um, to continue on the, the pharmacy journey. Absolutely. And, and your father and your family must have been so proud of you. I always love hearing when people got inspired by their family and their parent in particular, uh, to go on and pursue the path that they're on now. So that's brilliant. Yes. yes. And, what drew you then away? I know we went through introduction uh, very briefly there, but what drew you then away from working as a pharmacist in a more clinical setting and into pursuing a specialty in medication safety? Well, I've always been interested in how medications interact with the population at large. I have a very keen interest in poisoning prevention. I worked in, in that um, area for a while earlier in my career, actually while I was still in school. And, um, 
And I was also very interested in the industry as well. So it was kind of a, a good combination of um, being able to be involved in the pharmaceutical industry and also doing something larger that I can, where I can have an effect on people beyond just those patients that were in my clinical setting, whether it was in the pharmacy and it was patients coming in to pick up their prescriptions or buy over-the-counter medications, or when I was working in the hospital, the the people on the patients in my ward that I dispensed medications to. Um, and it was kind of a little bit of, of dumb luck, to be honest. Um, I answered back in the day when, when people used to find jobs in the, in the classified ads, I answered a, um, an ad in, in the Philadelphia Inquirer. <laughs> and, um, and that was how I, um, got introduced to the Institute for Safe Medication Practices and their subsidiary matters. Love that. And, and of course, drugs are unlike any other consumer product. And this might be a silly question to ask for all of the specialists listening into this, but I'm going to ask anyway. But, but when it comes to drugs, why must these be regulated differently to other products? And, and what risks and factors must be taken into consideration when selecting these? That's that's a great question, Sen, and and it's it's not too basic. I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Drugs certainly are unlike any other product, and all products have to. If you're going to attach a brand name to them, it, they have to go through a trademarking process, and there are very good and there's lots of expert trademark attorneys out there that can speak to this way better than I can. But um, there's always a trademarking process that has to be gone through for a product if you're going to put a brand name on it. And um, but with with drugs, the regulatory agencies like FDA and EMA and Health Canada take that one step further. So it's not necessarily about infringing on someone else's trademark or confusion from that standpoint. It's about confusion from the safety standpoint. And when drug names can get confused due to look-alike or sound-alike similarity, and the patient can end up getting the wrong medication. Um, and that's why those regulatory bodies like FDA and EMA do scrutinize the, the names for, to, to prevent this. Absolutely. And and that kind of nicely leads me on to the next question I had for you, Nancy, um, which is, I guess it'd be great to have some examples, some key examples of when maybe confusing names or unclear drug labeling has led to medication errors. And, and, and leading on from that, how can these errors be prevented or mitigated? It starts in 
the creation process of the names and they need to be screened very carefully and tested with the end users. Um, and it's, it's a really very involved process that happens during that drug development process and that naming process um, that ultimately, and especially working now with the creative experts at Addison Whitney, um, you know, I'm really getting a new insight into how that creation happens and how all of that careful screening happens that um, that results in a name that will be approved by the regulatory bodies and um, and be safe for patients to use and not be confused and result in medication errors. And, um, you know, some of the examples that we've seen, um, you know, people that are involved in the industry who may be listening, um, you know, may have seen some of the post-marketing name changes that have happened in years past. One of the more recent ones was the drug. Um, and I don't think um, it changed throughout the world. This was a U.S. example. Mm. Um, the, the drug Brintelix, it was confused with the product Brilinta. And, you know, sometimes these errors, we try to predict them and prevent them, but sometimes you can't predict them. And the regular regulatory bodies and the company will get reports of confusion leading to errors that will lead them to um, undertake a name change. So in the United States, uh, Brintelix got changed after the product was marketed to Trintelix to prevent that um, those first couple of letters that can lead to the, con- the confusion. And, and what about different languages then? What, what considerations are there in terms of ensuring that product labels accurately translate into different languages, I guess, to ensure that they are used and administered correctly around the world? Because I imagine that marginal changes in the way that we translate things in different countries and cultures can, can have a huge impact. And, and therefore, that's a quite, quite tricky thing to master, I guess, and get right. It, yes, yes, absolutely. And um, that's another thing that is involved with with names in the creation process. They're all tested linguistically in different languages to account for those pronunciation differences and cultural differences as well. And um, sometimes with labels, it it can get very tricky because, for instance, in Canada, um, English and French are both official languages of the country. So both of those languages are required to be translated on the label. 
And if you think about a container label of a small, maybe five milliliter vial or two milliliter vial, it becomes very challenging to fit all of the information on there in a way that is clear and concise and also meets the regulatory um, requirements of having all of the languages for a certain jurisdiction. And there are definitely some movements afoot from the naming standpoint as well as the container labeling standpoint to harmonize um, how things are communicated across the, uh, across the globe, really. Absolutely. And and I did actually have a question here for you, and we, we talked about it quite a lot here, but maybe there is more that you can add to it. Um, I was going to ask you about naming and, and how that differs from, from country to country, um, but you've kind of given us some examples there. Is, there. is there anything else, any other insights that you can give us with regards to that? Again, I think it, it lies in knowing what the regulatory requirements are in the country and um, knowing what types of errors have occurred in the past and, um, you know, kind of reincorporating that knowledge into the name creation process, as well as, like I mentioned previously, testing things, you know, with people on the ground in those countries and, and um, getting input from, um, you know, not only linguists, who speak the language and know the culture, but also practitioners who will be prescribing and possibly even patients who will be, in the case of a consumer product, um, who will be using the product as well. Absolutely. So, so fascinating. Thank you for answering those questions. I do have one more for you, though, which I've been saving. But Outside of work, how much attention do you pay to the contents and labels of everyday products like skincare or cosmetics? And and how vigilant should we be in checking what is in the products that we buy? That's a that's a great question. And um, you hit on my my secret passion, which actually is cosmetics. And um, I'm a little bit of a collector. Um, So I do pay attention to all of that labeling and packaging. And I had one one recently, in fact, it, it was a skincare product that I was using, and it was a yellow background with white writing. And I, I thought to myself, you know, how can anybody read this? Like, the packaging overall looked lovely. You know, it was a sunny yellow color. but And there were actually some significant warnings on this product about... Um, using sunscreen when using this particular skincare product and i was i was just dumbfounded and um you know unless something is considered to be a a drug 
and has, you know, even an over-the-counter, you know, quote-unquote drug in it, like a sunscreen, um, you know, then those labeling requirements will fall under drugs. But skincare and cosmetics and and even even foods. I mean, I laugh sometimes um, in the, uh, um, you know, I'll be in the grocery store and there'll be, you know, like the regular product and then the sugar-free product. And they look almost exactly alike. And, you know, one of the best mitigation strategies that we have for preventing confusion not only lies in uh, well-created names that are tested and vetted to make sure that the products aren't confused either in written or in speech, but also a well-designed label Um, and, and making sure that the, the products, if there are differences within a product line, that they are differentiated. So regular product and sugar-free product should be differentiated just as well as 10 milligrams and 50 milligrams of Mm -hmm. a drug product. So um, there are lots of um, risk mitigation strategies that can be put into place by the label design as well and the, and the package design. That is so interesting and certainly you're now making me want to go into the bathroom and look into my cosmetics cupboard and and check everything (laughs) and analyze everything because although I wouldn't call mine a passion mine is more an obsession with skincare products um so I've I've got a lot I've got a lot to get on with this evening by the sounds of it (laughs) and and even you know just the way we're buying things now and choosing things online um, you know, because everyone is, is, you know, nobody can go to the stores and buy things. So we're, mm. we're buying things online from a, a picture. And, um, and it's very similar to how medications are ordered in hospitals and from doctor's offices to pharmacies. It's electronic. And there are um, errors that can go along with some of those pick lists that you pick the product from. And it, I, I was just mentioning that to make the point that it all is very relatable to our daily life. So, so true. Absolutely. Nancy, thank you so, so much for joining us and sharing those insights with us. I've, I've said fascinating so many times because it really has been fascinating, <laughs> but, but thank you so much. Really appreciate it. My pleasure, Sen. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. Please do join us again next week for another interview with another fabulous guest on the EMG Gold podcast. Thank you and take care until then. 